Radio Lockdown is a Neptune podcast. I've been binge watching this show, which I shouldn't have done. It's really good, but it's warping my mind. What's it called? It's called Working Moms. Okay. I don't have any children, uh, but... <laughs> you work, so you feel one of the two headline components. Yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. two categories. Also, it's, it's this female written and directed, which, you know, is always something you should support. But they're funny and they're mean and I'm worried about them and their lives. And, ah, oh, just, ah. Oh. I don't want to say that all men are garbage, but they're not ideal in this. Except for Lionel, who's my boy, and he's great. So don't worry about him. He's doing fine. I mean, we'll be fine, like, with this episode because we can champion our friend Jacinda in New Zealand and we can uh, we can have a good time talking about her and not talk about Just a round men. of applause for w- Justin working so hard to get that back onto an even plane. <laughs> Hey, hey, no, this is this is beautiful. So tell me about working mums. Why should we why should I and by extension everyone else care about working mums? Because it's got everybody in every Canadian show you've ever watched. It's amazing. I'm talking I'm seeing people from Winona Up, Dark Matter, Killjoys, a little bit of psych, weirdly, and oh, what's the one about hockey? Letter Kenny. The one about hockey. The hockey players are some of the elements of Letter Kenny. Anyway, it's good. <laughs> Check it out. Is that show about hockey? No, it's really not. There are three main groups of people in that sort of feature in Letterkenny. Have I got that right? So, no, four. I'm sorry. Anyway, how have you been, Justin? I've been good. I've been to now a total of two cafes for eat-in meals. Whoa. I've had the brunch that I had with you guys a fortnight ago, and I've now had a family bonfire day. Great day for it. Very rainy bonfire down... uh, (laughs) Victor Harbour Way. Very good. Very good times. It was smoky and we caused all of the mist that is now enveloping Adelaide. What have you done? We did all of it. Yeah, we did it all by having so much tea. We just boiled the kettle so many times that we have enveloped Adelaide in a soothing fog. You know what's a a, a nice, gentle thing I did last weekend? Yeah. Last weekend was big, actually. My friend decided to have a party back on the coast that we're from. So not only did I get to go home, but I also got to go to a small gathering of finite friends. And then that small gathering then went out to a restaurant for a meal, like outside in the freezing cold. Oh, no. (laughs) Why did you do this to yourself and others? Oh, it was great because they had big fire pits. That's what made me think of it. We were very warm in the end, but it was a nice restaurant. So some of the people that didn't quite comprehend what was going to happen, had worn nice clothes but not necessarily warm clothes, and uh, someone brought their new girlfriend along and she was like, oh, I didn't realise it was going to be so cold. And we were all there, like, decked out in some pretty heavy-duty cold weather stuff. They're like, what? What about our... What uh, uh." What about our entire attire and demeanour suggests to you that we're ever going to be warm? Yes, thank you for explaining that. I'm not... I'm not 100% today, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Okay, well, luckily, I'm going to be doing a huge, huge amount of talking. Uh, We'll get to that in a moment, but but this is the first, apart from the COVID-safe ones where it's been me and Angus, this is the first big research piece that I've done. I have a lot of notes for that. But before that, we should do a theme song. And that's it. That's the one for this week. Yeah, huh? But it is definitely stealing. That's what that is. It's just not even. Isn't that like take me out to the ball game? Like, isn't that isn't that the baseball one? 
Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it's the sport one. Play ball. Get excited. Baseball is a great starting point because I love statistics. You money ball weirdo. Do we want to pick an old timey <laughs> theme? Oh, yeah. What do you got? Sling one on the board. I. That's not an expression no anyone has ever used. Sling one on let's the board. Just, let's just sling one on the board. No, let's just move swiftly on from that. What have you got? Sling One on the Board may be the name of one of the songs. I'll check it out. So I was listening back to one of our episodes the other day, and it was um, everybody was excited about jazz. Everybody's jazz in it. Yeah, and we were talking about how it was a bunch of white people who were appreciating the concept of jazz, and yeah. all I could think was, what a what a time to bring that up. This is, this is how preemptively woke we are. Just a bunch of white people step back for a while. Stop talking about jazz. We, we made a couple of comments in that show that were was Prescient. <laughs> prior to us finding out stuff, but as it turned out, quite relevant. I think we uh, like organically brought up riots at one point, and I was yeah. like, "Wow, yep, yeah, we really took the temperature of of the world." Not riots, demonstrations. We said riots. Some people say riots. Anyway, it's a whole thing. Don't call them riots. There is a version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Let's definitely listen to that and shut me up so quickly. I guess. It's a lot more in depth than, you know, I did not know this song had this many lyrics. I like Take Me Out to the Ball Game as like this. Sports are back. Sports back. We're mm-hmm. back in the world. Mm-hmm. We can do things again. I'm I'm so excited. And this sounds like a great date. Get some peanuts if you can consume peanuts. Just hang out, watch some people play baseball. Do you want a mildly amusing anecdote about peanuts? Tell me a mildly amusing anecdote about peanuts, Darcy. That's fun because if later you want to get rid of this, you just have to go mildly amusing Oh, no, because anecdote. I've flagged it so well. My housemate is allergic to nuts. So I can't, I can't. Fun anecdote. Great job, Darcy. Good ch- good chat. <laughs> I don't really care about nuts until you can't have them. And uh, for a while there, my friends had this bag of peanuts that they almost just, you know, just used for garnish, really. And every time I would go over to their house, my mate would come out of his room and be like, whoa, it would just be me eating a handfuls of nuts, being like, hey, buddy, what's going on? <laughs> what the fuck are you? I just, I just, I can't have them in my house. I don't want to kill my housemate. Aww. But I crave the forbidden. The forbidden peanut. Mm-hmm. I have a jar of peanut butter at, at work. I'm like, nom, nom, nom. 
I literally had coworkers be like, geez, do you want any bread with that peanut butter? Like, shut up, lady. I can't have this all the time. It's my special treat. Thus concludes Darcy's peanut anecdote. amusing (laughs) Thank you for your mildly amusing anecdote, Darcy. I'm here to serve, you know. That is amazing. The other thing I did over this weekend was Mm -hmm. I watched all of the Lord of the Rings films back to back. Oh, extended edition? Extended editions. Yeah, you want that sweet spot. That's how I mm-hmm. spent my Saturday, was watching 11 and a half hours of Lord of the Rings, because the episode today is primarily about the great nation of New Zealand. Oh man, I really just want to talk about Lord of the Rings now. <laughs> well, this is going to be a conversation about New Zealand, but we can absolutely talk about Lord of the Rings during it. <laughs> Because I knew that you would want to inevitably it's when I trap. talk about New Zealand anyway. I knew that yeah. I knew that you were going to like whenever I was gonna talk you about preempted me. Absolutely. I was gonna talk about New Zealand and I was like, Darcy is gonna try and outnerve me on Lord of the Rings. I have to be you up know to speed again. What's legitimately amazing is I consistently get outnerded. Like I have an Elvish tattoo and I consistently get outnerded on Lord of the Rings. Okay. And that's because I have a friend who has voluntarily read the Silmarillion more than once. <laughs> I started I started reading the Silmarillion yes, as most and then people do. And then they're like, oh, this is actually a genealogy with some very sad stories in it. No, thank you. It's like the start of the Bible. I mean, once you push past the start of the Bible, there's some fun parables in there, but it's very much like the first bit at the start is just such and such begat such and such who begat such and such. Which, if you remember, is quite similar to the beginning of the Fellowship. It's a lot of genealogy. Very similar. Tolkien, Tolkien did not set out to be an author. <laughs> he told stories where he could set his languages because he was a cool, cool dude. Um, part of the reason that I... We dr- when we were in England, we drank at the pub where he drank with C.S. Lewis. You cool cats. I know, right? <laughs> it smelled really bad in there. Anyway, so a cool pub. I'm going to push other news out of the way. I'm going to push Lord of the mm-hmm. Rings out of the way for mm-hmm. a second to give us an intro to our New Zealand segment, uh, which... And I can't take credit for this. Ellen proposed the title Bubbleo Bilbo, which is (laughs) so beautiful because we are going to be talking about the history of coronavirus in New Zealand over the past few months from its arrival in February to its apparent elimination in June, as well as the potential future of the virus impacts on the New Zealand economy and the potential for a travel bubble to be set up between New Zealand and Australia. So that pun works on multiple levels and I'm very, very happy. I mean, first of all, I obviously started thinking about ice cream because I was like, Buffalo Bill, those delicious ice creams. Indeed. Anybody that's listening internationally, you don't have them. It's it's just a Wild West character. Oh, that's true. But in Australia, it's like a, a ice cream in the shape of a dude with a hat with a chocolate backing and a bubblegum nose. Yeah, yeah. So that's already a, a pun, yeah. Buffalo Bill, who mm-hmm. is... Great stuff. Yeah. It's it's like a cowboy with a fun bubblegum nose that mm-hmm. tastes Bubblegum tastes like awful. shit. Because, yeah, imagine taking a bowl of bubble gum and then sticking it in a freezer for months. And that's not where they're sinking their money. (laughs) That bowl of bubble gum is not ideal. There's a lot going on there. There's bubble gum, Bill. There's Buffalo Bill. Oh, there's the Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill. 
There's so many levels. We're not going into that guy. No, 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 no. Not that guy. But we would discuss whether the uh, travel bubble with Australia is as bullshit as the small piece of bubble gum you get on a bubble pill. <laughs> that, that may be a, a portion of our discussion today. Like Treebeard, I never say anything unless it is worth taking a long time to say. Like Treebeard, you're very annoying. <laughs> I love the ants. Don't get me wrong. They fuck shit up in a spectacular way. But, oh, I understand why the wife's left. They didn't lose. They, they lost them. It's a thing. Don't worry about it. Go on, ant wives. Go on. What's the news? Let's talk about an unexpected journey. Oh, you're going to be insufferable, aren't you? Very much so. All right, Justin. What's going on? Auckland, New Zealand reported its first confirmed case of coronavirus on the 28th of February, with the first positive tests indicating that infected people had arrived in New Zealand separately on flights from Iran, Northern Italy and the United States. This was as far as we knew at the time, two months into the spread of the virus. Later, epidemiology would highlight cases in China and Italy as early as November, but at this point, the Chinese government had first reported the virus on December 31st, 2019. During February, the coronavirus had already been caught by four New Zealanders aboard the Diamond Princess cruise ship who were treated in Yokohama, and possibly by some of the crew aboard the Grand Princess cruise ship who were quarantined in San Francisco. But beginning on the 28th of February, this first wave of domestic cases meant a new response would be required, so they ramped up testing. When the fifth positive test came through on the 7th of March, New Zealand had tested a total of 300 people in two months. By the time the sixth positive test came through a week later on the 14th, they'd run 584 tests. By the 21st, they'd run 6,940. That's, that's a bit of an increase. Yeah. How do you want to jump in? When do you want to jump in? Are you just going to like flag that you have stuff to say? <laughs> would you Would you like me to say something now, Justin? I don't, no, you don't need to say anything at that point. I, I just want to, I just want to oh, indicate. Oh boy, that's a lot of tests. Go on. I'm just editing in that. Oh boy. Wow. Some tests. You don't say. Gee, Williger. <laughs> That's just some things for you to edit in later so it can sound like I'm super laser focused. Listening at mm. all. <laughs> uh, I, I, I will probably bebop in. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I'll see what the spirit does when it takes me, you know? Sure, sure. Let the spirit move you. <laughs> Um, I should note that some of the stats we have talk about positive cases and some of them talk about positive and suspected cases. So when I say suspected, we're still talking fairly strong evidence, but it's circumstantial rather than a positive test that has been performed by a doctor. So, for example, that third positive case in New Zealand was the son of a man who had returned from Iran a few weeks earlier, but his father never tested positive himself. So his father might be a suspected case because this guy has no other way of getting the virus than the guy that just came back from Iran where the virus is taking off. It's just an so, educated surmise. Yes, yes. You, you might reasonably say that. Anyway, on the 14th of March, the same day Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison said he might attend a rugby league match despite his own government's recommendations, New Zealand... Oh, yeah. Yep. Remember that when that <laughs> happened? Yeah, that, that, that's, he's got to regret that. The same day, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern cancelled a national remembrance service for the Christchurch mosque shootings because she's a good leader. 
on the 16th, all travellers coming into New Zealand were forced to self-isolate. Ardern also warned on the 16th that the outbreak could lead to a recession greater than the 2008 financial crisis. So she's getting in early. Managing expectations. Right, right. On the 21st of March, Jacinda Ardern... Actually, no, she's made too many too many accurate calls. We should probably burn her. She is a witch, is the thing, guys. We haven't thought it through. She can tell the future, is the thing, right? We should join the arrest Bill Gates chants with arrest Jacinda Ardern. Yep. Why would you... That's a chant? Oh, God. Listen to the mini-sodes. Anyway. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> on the 21st of March, Jacinda Ardern introduced a national alert level system to deal with the outbreak, similar to New Zealand's existing fire alert levels, with one being the least risk of infection and four being the highest. It was set to alert level two. At alert level two, people over 70 years old and those with compromised immune systems were asked to stay at home. And then the virus came for New Zealand's beef. What would become the first major outbreak in New Zealand took place at the World Hereford Conference between the 9th and 13th of March, an 800 New Zealand dollar industry event held in Queenstown to celebrate the latest innovations in the breeding, handling and monitoring of Hereford beef and dairy herds. See now, that's important because unlike the stereotype suggesting that New Zealanders like to fuck their sheep, uh, which of course, as you know, Justin, came about because of the population of New Zealand being two sheep to one person for a time period. But actually, it hasn't been that way for a very long time. Pig and beef sales have increased exponentially, whereas sheep is more of a third place sort of situation. You can fact check that, but I feel like the guy who gave us the tour of the Rohirrim site of New Zealand, yeah, we went there, he he explained that to us. Thank you for what I thought was just going to be racism, but actually became educational. It's the opposite. The opposite of it's that. It's strange because you would have thought that it'd be about how New Zealanders fuck sheep. It's a joke that's not true, but it came from something. It is. It is. About the agricultural system. It okay. is a long-standing heckle that Australians deliver towards New Zealanders, which is just buying when New Zealand players play in our ovals. And it's, we should be mooing. Their primary industries have moved around a bit, is all I'm saying. And here comes that fact check. New Zealand's sheep population peaked in 1982 when its human population of 3.2 million people was outnumbered at a ratio of 22 sheep per capita by its 70 million sheep. The country is now the world's largest exporter of both sheep meat and dairy, with dairy farming now accounting for the greater share of New Zealand's agricultural profits. But while declining, the national sheep-to-human ratio remains high, with 27.6 million sheep as of 2016, or more than five sheep for each of New Zealand's 4.9 million people. Regarding the less savoury component of this section, I haven't been able to find a single news story about a New Zealander engaging in uh, acts with sheep, but I am definitely on some watch lists now for looking for it. So thanks, guys. On with the show. Also, the kingdom of Rohan is beautiful. I mean, I I would love to hear more about it very shortly. (laughs) But until then, we are focused in Queenstown where the first case at the World Hereford Conference was reported on March 22nd. It eventually accounted for 39 cases, and a small disclaimer on the World Hereford Conference website now reads, Recent attendees at the World Hereford Conference 2020 may have been exposed to COVID-19. New Zealand Herefords is working closely with the Ministry of Health. On March 23rd, the same day that Australia's first social distancing restrictions came into place, New Zealand committed to an elimination strategy, raising the alert level to three. All schools were closed immediately, 
all sports matches and events were cancelled, and all non-essential services were required to close in 48 hours when the alert level would reach level 4. Parliament was adjourned for five weeks, but not before passing bills to invest in emergency spending, freeze rent, and prevent no-cause evictions, which is not legislation that's been passed in Australia. Good stuff. Interesting stuff. I don't believe we've broken this down before on the show, the distinction between mitigation, suppression, and elimination. Have we gone into that before? No. I feel like I'd remember if we'd gone into that because it's a longer discussion. I'm going to give kind of a shorter version of it. So mitigation is just about reducing the spread of the virus without necessarily reducing the number of cases in the long term. So if we start from the assumption that everyone will eventually get the virus, then the main goal of mitigation is to stop everyone getting the virus at once. This is where we get the idea of flattening the curve, right? Like mitigating the virus through individual efforts designed to reduce the short-term drain on hospital resources, but ultimately you are going to let the virus run its course and that's how you're going to develop immunity over time. Mm -hmm. Mitigation is absolutely the way that countries have historically dealt with pandemics. You delay the arrival of the virus, and then once it does arrive, you try to limit the number of people getting infected and dying by encouraging people to take simple precautions and discouraging risky behaviour. Government agencies in New Zealand soon realised the problem with mitigation, though. In the long run, especially with the coronavirus, flattening the curve on its own would be insufficient to prevent their medical systems from being overloaded. Suppression and elimination strategies had seen some attention as the virus took off, especially in northern Italy where mitigation was already failing. Italy's first COVID death took place in the township of Vaux on the 21st of February, and in response, regional authorities locked down the town's 3,400 people, testing more than two-thirds of the town on the 23rd of February and again on the 8th of March. Beforehand, around 90 people were infected. Afterwards, it was more like 40. And I'm just basing that on the town's overall population and then the percentages that were infected before and after. From reconstructions of the chain of transmission in Vaux, we now know that most new infections during this time took place before the lockdown or from asymptomatic cases within a household. Later studies would note that 43% of all confirmed infections were asymptomatic and the lockdown did not involve confirmed cases isolating in a central location away from their homes. So that's been an important component in some countries where, especially when there's lots of cases, you want to keep those confirmed cases in a central location and not let people isolate at home. But we can still say the lockdown in Vaux was largely successful, limiting the spread of the virus altogether. This is the key to a suppression model. You don't just encourage sick people to stay home, assuming their symptoms will be low level and the virus will run its course. You expand testing, legally enforce social distances, restrict businesses, services and public spaces, and generally limit outbreaks to small unavoidable clusters that can be managed by contact tracing and centralised isolation until a successful vaccine is developed. The analogy that's been drawn in Australia is that we're running a marathon and New Zealand is running or ran a sprint. Have you heard that one before? Yeah. That's a good way of summarizing the difference between suppression and elimination. So in an elimination model, you do all that good suppression stuff really intensely and really fast with the goal of reducing the total number of cases to zero or near zero. You don't just restrict businesses, services, and public spaces. You close them. You don't just enforce social distance. You ban non-essential movement. The choice in New Zealand was go hard or go home, and they chose both. Because <laughs> the, like, You're proud of yourself. Testing would prove that this was the right call. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to say at this point? No, go hard, go home. It's great. It's great work. You're doing great, sweetie. Thank you. Testing would prove that this was the right call. 
On March 23rd, New Zealand committed to elimination, and in the two weeks between March 24th and April 7th, New Zealand went from 155 to 1,160 positive and suspected cases. So there we have the positive and suspected number. But under lockdown, it began to level out. By the 15th of April, they were up to nearly 1,400 total cases, but had performed more than 70,000 tests, and more people had recovered from the virus than were sick with it. By the 27th, when the lockdown was lifted to level 3, they'd performed more than 126 thousand tests and could confidently say that more than three quarters of the infected people had recovered. Schools reopened, work restrictions were loosened, and New Zealanders were allowed to order takeaway. They went a long time without being able to order takeaway. That would just have destroyed everything I stand for. (laughs) And that's why we have to visit New Zealand, because we would destroy it were we to live there for too long. That's that's your reasoning? You can never go there. You would destroy it. You and I can go there, Darcy, but it's too pure. It's too pure for our destructive energies. It's true. And if I go there, I feel like I'd have to take up like a a sport. I'd have to get into hiking. It's so beautiful and so skinny and so mountainous. And you're just like, well, what am I going to do? Not appreciate nature? I mean, Australia is great and all, but it's got big dry spots where you can be like, I got to stay inside. Whereas New Zealand, you're like, oh, this is all quite pretty. I got to take up going outside more. And gross, you know. And the nature of man is inherently violent, which I learned from The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so we would definitely tear shit down. You just wanted to say that. What else happened? So they're free now? They're free of the Rona? Well, yes. So gradually the country opened back up again. Bars reopened on the 21st of May, with New Zealand preparing to drop back to alert level one. And then on Monday, the 8th of June, which by the time you listen to it, it will be Monday of last week, New Zealand officially announced the recovery of the last confirmed case, and with that, a return to a sort of normality. On Tuesday the 9th, they lifted all domestic containment measures, including social distancing. With no new cases since the 17th of May, they believe they have eliminated transmission of the coronavirus. New Zealand's total since May, which they hope will be their final total, has stood at 1,154 confirmed cases, 350 suspected cases, to a total of 1,504. Of those, 1,482 people recovered and 22 people died. Well, this is why we say at time of recording on this show, on the 16th of June, obviously after the show was recorded, New Zealand authorities revealed that two women were released early from quarantine before testing positive to coronavirus, breaking New Zealand's 24-day case-free streak. The women, who were headed to Wellington for a parent's funeral, are understood to have made contact with only one other person after leaving quarantine on compassionate grounds. All three are now in self-isolation. As I record this clarification on Friday the 19th, there are also mixed reports of a 60-year-old man from Pakistan who has tested positive in isolation in New Zealand. This doesn't seem as worrisome because he hasn't left the hotel where he's quarantined, but it's still a developing story. Hopefully I'll have something to edit into the next episode if there is any development. The other development from during the week is that New Zealand's Assistant Chief of Defence, Digby Webb, has now been placed in charge of managing quarantine and isolation facilities. He's authorised to use military logistics, expertise and personnel in this role. I'll try to have more details on that in next week's show where we continue to play Pin the Tail on a Live Donkey. So how did they go there and back again? It's going to be a long podcast. I don't know, Justin, was it? That they didn't let anyone touch anyone for a good long while? Because it seems like that did the trick, right? Darcy, one does not simply eradicate coronavirus. How are you ruining Lord of the Rings for me? I don't understand. 
when we say <laughs> oh, is there more can you not like space them out a bit when we say that COVID has been don't, eliminated. Don't let them all run in together like the Nazgul in the first movie. And then, then they split up and it's the whole thing. Anyway. Which King of Everywhere takes it to the face. Woo! When we say that COVID has been eliminated in New Zealand, that means that since the last infected person left isolation, they've had no cases for at least 28 consecutive days. Hopefully on the numbers, that means they've stopped the virus's silent spread. We'll still probably see some cases, but they'll be imported from abroad. Anyone travelling to New Zealand will need to spend some time in quarantine to avoid that. You shall not pass. <laughs> you know what? Some some fun off-topic thing. <laughs> I got stuck in a YouTube hole the other day, and in this YouTube hole I found an interview where Sir Ian McKellen is talking about how shredded he used to be. <laughs> and just, like, if you want something fun, just Google. I mean, you can Google shredded Gandalf if you're feeling it, but Sir Ian McKellen is his correct title. He was ripped in those films. He was he was a ripped Gandalf. So handsome. Like there's one there's one shot where he like has like the corner of his top off and I was like, this is the best moment in this eleven hours of film. You know, I don't think he rode a horse for it. Like he was too old. They were like, the insurance is too much and also Sir Ian McKellen doesn't want to get on a horse, so we're not gonna make him because C aforementioned Sir Ian McKellen. <laughs> Anytime it's him on a horse, it's just him on a barrel. Like him on Shadow Facts, him on a barrel. But was he Sir Ian McKellen at that point? Surely it was just Ian McKellen. Didn't he get knighted after that? Oh, I don't know. I thought he got knighted because he was Gandalf, and everyone was like, "The Queen loves <laughs> so, the Queen." Canonically, loves ripped Gandalf. They were like, "You did save us all." So anyway, I have some more to say. Some more terrible jokes to say, perhaps. Australia, as we mentioned, has been opting instead for a suppression strategy. Uh, the idea was that we had too many cases to realistically target all of them, so we just needed to keep people away from each other so that we can focus our attention on a few clusters of people. It's worked well enough here that we've ended up with zero cases in some areas, but the government's stated aim, even with more targeted efforts like contact tracing, has been to suppress rather than to eliminate. As I mentioned earlier, the analogy that's been drawn is that Australia is running a marathon and New Zealand ran a sprint. That analogy is being used by the same people that claim that Australia is making a better call for our economy. Kind of strange and kind of makes sense. I would have thought that a marathon actually requires more resources than a sprint. But realistically, Australia may never have been in a position to do what New Zealand did. I think that's the thing, right? They have a smaller population. You could make an argument they're more isolated. I'm not sure how good that argument would be. But the smaller population thing's got a way into it. Whereas Australia... We just did it. We could have tackled it quicker, maybe, but by sheer numbers alone, would we have been able to do elimination as a as a theory, as a way to move forward? This is a tricky question. So Australia's first case was on the 25th of January, which is more than a month before New Zealand's first case. And as far as I can tell, I haven't been able to confirm this, but apart from, I mentioned the Diamond Princess, which was quarantined in Japan earlier i know i know it's terrible every time you say that though i think of the princess jewels series and i get very distracted well i mean they're meant to evoke lovely princesses as opposed to horrid plague galleons um <laughs> to me they evoke a series of adventures where you get like a special like a jewel came with it justin i can't stress how exciting that was and then the idea was you could also have a magical pet i think it could talk to you and i'm gonna have to send you the link about them because now i need you to share in that experience 
Anyway, so... Apart from the 24 Australians that jumped aboard the Diamond Princess so that they could get a magical gem pet, as far as I can tell... I don't understand. There was a diamond and she had an Arctic fox. It was amazing. Amazing, Justin. So apart from them, I believe that all Australian cases came from China until the 29th of February when Queensland reported the first infected person to return from Iran. So that was around the same time as New Zealand's first case, which was also reported at the end of February from Iran. And until the Ruby Princess came and and docked in Sydney, cases in Australia were very much coming like dribs and drabs. It seemed like border controls might do the trick. So we banned travel from China in January, then we banned travel from Iran in February. We were slow to close our border with the US, but it's really hard to overstate the role of the Ruby Princess in Australia. As we've discussed earlier, as of mid-April, and this is the most recent number that I could find, 852 of the Australian passengers on the Ruby Princess had caught the coronavirus. So it accounts directly for one in nine Australian cases, even before counting a single person that might have then been infected by one of those passengers. And it is suspected that Australia's largest cluster, which was between two northwestern Tasmanian hospitals, started with two Ruby Princess passengers. So theoretically, you're looking at another, I believe, 137 cases. Huge, huge number of cases from the Ruby Princess. Yeah. The Ruby Princess accounts for at least 22 deaths, which is the total death toll in New Zealand. So, yeah, given we've mentioned just in this episode outbreaks on the Diamond Princess, Grand Princess, and Ruby Princess, I'm not jumping on a princess cruise anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. I can't say the, the impulse to cruise was... <laughs> Phrasing. Impulse to cruise. The impulse to go on a cruise ship was not strong beforehand. And I, I think this has quite effectively crashed it. Like, yeah. There, there have been some interviews with some lovely people that have gone on them, got over coronavirus, come out the other side and gone, oh, yes, we'll jump back on a cruise anytime. And you're like, yes, I long for death <laughs> is what they're saying in that interview. You can just. That's the subtitle you should put on that video. The Ruby Princess, I believe, and I'll fact check this afterwards, but I believe that the Ruby Princess has separately had to warn passengers about a case of tuberculosis that came up in the past couple of months. Like while they're talking about cases of coronavirus on the Ruby Princess, they're now also talking about tuberculosis. It's it's nuts. Anyway, fact check. Yeah, that's absolutely true. The ABC reported on the 30th of May that passengers aboard the Ruby Princess that previously would have been contacted about the coronavirus would also have received a message about a crew member that had tuberculosis. It's less of a risk than coronavirus because you would have to be in closer quarters with the crew member in question. But yeah, not good. Oh, and uh, preemptively ignore the next thing that Darcy says. <laughs> it makes you wonder, like, about genetic memory. Because... What, the tuberculosis <laughs> remembered it was on the Ruby Princess and went, yep. Yeah, like, a lot of people that came to Australia were convicts that came in boats. And they can't have been good, <laughs> right? That can't have been a good experience. Yeah, hang on, you're saying... <laughs> I'm... I'm just curious that, that Australians have an innate vulnerability. You know, the theory of genetic memory. Yeah, maybe we, we there should be something in our brains going, don't get into a boat with close quarters. Yeah, and, <laughs> and the people that are on cruises notoriously uh, trend older. So some of them may have even been the original convicts. Do you, do you want to keep making your jokes about Lord of the Rings now? Now that... Unlike a... I've really fucked up a scientific concept. So unlike Australia, uh, New Zealand, 
like the dwarves, mm-hmm. was a natural-born sprinter. Oh, <laughs> Gimli. New Zealand not built for long distances. He loves Legolas so much by the end of it. He's so lovely. And then they, like, cross-pollinate cultures for, for Aragorn. They're like, ooh, did you want some, some nice gardens and some nice gems? And they give them to Aragorn at the end because they're like, ooh. Anyway, um, <clears throat> what are you saying? Um, anyway. Dwarves. A serious <laughs> Sprinting. Podcast. Serious times. <laughs> I'm cool, what? So what can we learn from New Zealand, Darcy? That, you know, it doesn't matter how big you are, what you do in the end, you know, it can be someone as small as a hobbit and then they have this big impact, you know? You that... said New Zealand, not Lord of the Rings. I'm, I'm working through it. So It's okay, it's okay. So what, what can we learn from them if not that we should try to have better luck? Peter Van Onselen in The Australian is our baseline because he says... There's simply no comparison to be had. And I'm going to quote here. To use a diving analogy, Australia is 90% of the way through completing a triple reverse somersault and we look like landing the re-entry. The applause is pending. New Zealand did a simple swan dive off the five metre board and has already made the perfect entry. End quote. Frankly, I think this is crap, Pete. (laughs) It seems mean to New Zealand. Yeah. I mean, you said perfect entry. That's fun. But like... Because what's New Zealand really had to deal with in the past couple of years? Let's not list or look it up. To say, well, we're not exactly the same as New Zealand, so let's stop talking about it, is pure equivocation. Despite the fact that we had our first case a month before New Zealand, we took action on coronavirus at the same time. You don't say! Gee willikers! Anyway, there's a few things we can learn from the full lockdown. In medical journal The Lancet, Professor and New Zealand Government Health Advisor Michael Baker notes that the full lockdown allowed New Zealand to get key systems up and running. Since the 8th of March, more than 304,000 tests have been performed in a country of less than 5 million people, which is more than 20,000 a week and peaking at more than 40,000 a week. That's pretty good, although Australia has been consistently testing more than 20,000 people a day, so... uh... We're pretty cool too, you guys. Oh boy, that's a lot of tests. Go on. What the lockdown did, as well as allowing them to focus their testing, was to give them the breathing room to effectively monitor their borders, to focus on running contact tracing, testing, and surveillance, eventually allowing them to specifically test all members of particular vulnerable groups, such as those in aged residential care and healthcare workers. The New Zealand Ministry of Health, and especially the Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern, also focused on positive messaging, carefully balancing the science with compassionate leadership. And I think this is one of the big contrasts we've seen with the more disciplinary approach we've seen from the Australian government, even though our restrictions here have actually been less strict. Associate Professor and self-described cool pink-haired science lady, Suxi Wiles, who is the head of the University of Auckland's bioluminescent superbugs lab. You got a little science crush there, bro. She came up with the... Um... Just you sound like me talking about Mads Mikkelsen. <laughs> exactly, exactly the same. Uh, she and an illustrator from New Zealand came up with that flatten the curve gif that you almost certainly saw. Mm-hmm. She said that the framing of COVID-19 has been one of New Zealand's key successes. I'm just going to quote her here as well. In other countries, people have been talking about war and battle, which puts people in a negative and fearful frame of mind. The official response here has been guided by the principle that you do not stigmatize and that we unite against COVID-19, end quote. We've kind of seen a little bit of stigma here right from the start. Cooler heads haven't always prevailed. Andrew, Andrew, I'm sorry, you've had several questions. Andrew, I'm sorry. Andrew, I know, but you don't run the press conference, okay? 
So I'm going to go to other questions of members of the, of the, of the group. Catherine hasn't had a question. I'm happy to return to you, but let's just okay. keep it civil. Catherine. To build public trust in the lockdown restrictions, Jacinda Ardern has led by example, regularly appearing on social media to smile and wave while making it clear that she, the Prime Minister of the country, is not leaving her house. And this undeniably worked. Polls came out more and more in favour of the lockdown as the months progressed. A Newshub Read research poll conducted from the 8th to the 16th of May asked whether it was the right call to implement the nationwide Level 4 stay-at-home order. 91.6% responded yes. That's nuts. That's a lot of people. Only 6% said no. So they had a different approach to it, and it might have been better than our approach. Yes? yes. It definitely was better than our approach in terms of the messaging. So now I remember this was sort of being raised with Western Australia, where they were like, we could eliminate COVID-19. And then the issue was then going to be, well, that's going to be awkward if the rest of Australia doesn't, because then WA will be isolated. Their internal economy can't sustain themselves. They need stuff from within Australia to keep going. That's why elimination wasn't really the plan for WA. I don't know if that's still true. But does New Zealand now have an issue where... Like, they're waiting for a cure. Well, I guess you just test everybody that comes in if you just said, yeah, our country's clean. I'll get to that in just a moment. Mm -hmm. I do want to mention that 91% positive is very difficult to compete with, except it is also the rating of the Fellowship of the Ring on Rotten Tomatoes. Why are they making a TV series of it? Look, it could go either way, is the thing, you know? I'm back, I'm back, I'm talking about the things. <laughs> I'm focused. I think one of the big takeaways from New Zealand's success is that the difference between suppression and elimination, sure, that might be as much a matter of demographic and epidemiological conditions as it is between government policies. But with a complete lockdown also comes the ability to communicate consistent rules that are easy to follow and to develop positive messaging that's easy to, to, to comply with. This has been so much easier to research than any of the Australian states loosening restrictions or strengthening restrictions because the whole of New Zealand went into lockdown. They went into a couple of tiers of lockdown, but they were fairly universal. It wasn't different for different kinds of business. Essentially, there, there were a couple of specifics, but everything went into lockdown then everything opened back up. And now they've even done away with social distancing now. You've got a completely different model. In Australia, each state has really regulated everything down to a fine point, um, and it's very difficult to communicate that. Scott Morrison did make an effort towards that by creating the National Cabinet and having like a central body that could come to agreements between the states. We've still had some very inconsistent rules in Australia, and certainly the messaging has not all been positive. Mm. Also, I like Jacinda Ardern, and so does New Zealand. Um, she's the most popular prime minister since the beginning of polls in New Zealand, with a 59.5% approval rating. You reckon, like, when did polls start? Was there, like, a really ancient one that you think they were like, yeah, this guy's the shit? And you're just like, I have to say, since polls have been created, because obviously that guy would have cleaned up, but, like, you know, no polls, so how are we to know? Yeah, I mean, we have to say since polls began, right? That other famous New Zealand politician, of course, Justin, you are talking about... We have no idea what Saruman's approval rating was when he ruled 
New Zealand. Prime Minister Ardern has said, while we're in a safer, stronger position, there's still no easy path back to pre-COVID life, but the determination and focus we've had on our health response will now be vested in our economic rebuild. And this is the kind of second part of our New Zealand chat. I'm just going to take a breath for a minute. How you feeling? Oh, boy. Next time on Radio Lockdown, it's all the fun stuff we just spent half an hour building to. At this point, and this is of note, the instructor realises that Emma and I are hungover. That pig is spectacular. The YouTube hole is very, very dark. Putting your mouth on railings, having sex and murdering each other. The worm turns, Justin. It could have fucked everything up. Munchings and crunchings. The Kimura. The thrilling conclusion. Only on Radio Lockdown. You've been listening to Radio Lockdown, a Neptune podcast.